what happens if we don't do this work, right? You don't make that sale. You don't have a leadership team that's ready. You make sales that you can't deliver on. You lose X number of customers. You can't get your customer success rates, retention rates from 75% to 93%, whatever your targets are. What's the value of that? So finding ways to quantify it in the client's world and words um, helps you establish what your value is. so much for joining us for another episode. We've got a great one in store for you. In case you happen to miss the last episode, here's a quick snippet and then we will get on to the show. That is transitioning to your confidence. So sales, anything in life is really about confidence. The more confident person is always going to have the upper hand and not to say it's competition, but really if I'm in a conversation with a prospect across you know, the table from me or on the phone, I have to have more confidence that my service is is good, is valuable, and obviously asking them the right questions and hearing their needs and connecting. Is their problem and my solution the right the right fit? And then in the sales world, once you're more confident and you have your beliefs um, aligned with who you are and you're really honest with yourself, honesty being the best policy, right? Now you can start to take action, massive, immediate, <laughs> inspired action. So now when you're um, going to networking meetings and you're, you're, whether you're passing out business cards or collecting cards or you're on the phone with prospects, you're um, making videos, Facebook Lives, you're, whatever you're doing to attract more traffic to you, you're doing that action from an inspired place because you know that A, I have something good, B, I have something valuable and C, this is going to be something that people will will pay me for and enjoy and consume and then become your evangelist and <laughs> and spread that message to more people. I mean, that's, you know, the, that's the golden goose right there. It's sort of one of the salient moments of my story was that I went to the high school that was uh, featured in Friday Night Lights. So I grew up in the West Texas desert, which was sand and football and oil. <laughs> And uh, it's a very independent entrepreneurial atmosphere, uh, which was all about sort of giving it your all and giving it your best and, and winning. Um, and so that's the, that's the environment I grew up in. I had two amazing parents. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur, my mother was a nurse, uh, who was all about sort of servant leadership, right? And, uh, and then I, I was in this incredible community, which I just didn't recognize at the time, but um, left there, went to engineering school, got an engineering degree uh, and happened to stumble into uh, uh, an amazing uh, corporation, Compact Computer, when it was in its infancy. Uh, we hadn't shipped any product yet, and we didn't have any revenue yet. And in the first year, we created $111 million in revenue, and we were the fastest-growing company of our time, the fastest-growing company to a billion at that point. And by the time I left 14 years later, we were at $15 billion, and had gone from 104 employees, me, to 15 
excuse me, 17,000 employees by the time I left. And uh, in my own world, um, I was able to grow and develop from a sort of a party of one to uh, about 300 people working for me and thousands of contractors and consultants worldwide. And of course, I did about a billion dollars in CapEx spend while I was there, at about a $50 million a year um, expense budget. So um, I had this amazing growth journey as well. And uh, I took what I learned from that when it was time to leave Compaq and figure out what I wanted to do next. And I've been working with entrepreneurs ever since, helping them grow their companies. That's phenomenal. Well, that's a, a wellspring of experience and knowledge that is clearly there. So can you walk us through a little bit in that process of going from, I mean, everybody knows Compaq. And so taking a look from where it was when it started to then mm -hmm. when you ended up leaving, uh, uh, can you tell us about some of the challenges that you saw with oh uh, sort of some of the growth that was there and some yeah. of the some of the key points that you uh, were like aha moments or you you got things that helped you mature in your thought process of how to manage business and growth and entrepreneurship right well you know when I started there I was in my early 20s and so I knew literally nothing <laughs> other than um, I thought other than what I thought I knew which is that I knew the right way to do things and people would just do them the way that I wanted them to do them it was a it was a big uh, sort of laboratory in many ways for, for most of us. But the people that I followed there and the real world we said that I left, uh, this Fortune 100 company I was working with at the time, was I, I noticed the people I really thought a lot of and in, admired and respected with this larger company leaving and going to this smaller firm, although we didn't know what they were building at the time. There was a lawsuit. It was very secret. Uh, but I went because of the people that were there. And so I think that was one of my, one of my first lessons was that um, A players want to work with other A players. And uh, that I think that if you have one secret weapon in your back pocket, it needs to be that the people you employ should be A players because that will help you attract the kind of people that you want and you need to grow your organization. Um, beyond that, I mean, growth covers a lot of sins. I think uh, anybody who's been in a growth company sees that because, you know, you're growing so fast and uh, in many cases so profitable that you don't have to be as effective and efficient as you otherwise might. Now, I'm an industrial engineer, so efficiency is like near and dear to my heart. I'm all about process. But when you're growing really fast, you only really have enough time to get things done, not necessarily done the right way. Uh, but what we were at Compaq was a place where we knew we were a, we were a big company in the formative stages. That was a, a goal that we set. And because of that, I think we laid the groundwork and the foundation in terms of processes that allowed us to build on them as the company grew. Now, the other thing was we didn't know we were gonna grow so fast, right? We didn't know the first year we were gonna do $111 million and we might've made different decisions had we known that. Um, but, but when the growth happened, uh, clearly we had all hands on deck and we had these amazing high performance teams that we just sprang into action and got things done. And I think those kinds of startup experiences are what but many of us who've been able to, to have those experiences, either in business or sometimes they happen on sports teams. But when you have these experiences, um, it's, the kind of, um, uh, it's the kind of experience that you want to have over and over again. And so in many ways, I think I've spent a lot of the rest of my career helping other organizations create that environment so that they too can have high-performing team experiences. In Compact's case, there were a couple of major takeaways. One was, um, this idea of no dumbing down, um, which is the title of the, the book that I recently released, No Dumbing Down. Um, and that was that we, we didn't allow um, 
anyone in the organization um, to, to be the weak link, right? So if you think about teams, they can really only perform at the level of the lowest performing member on the team. And so everybody else on the team has to dumb down to that level in order for the team to get things done. And that's just the way that, that it is. And what happens is if you have a lot of dumbing down going on in your organization, your A players begin to see the team as a tar pit and they don't want to go anywhere near it. And in fact, they may head for the door. This, um, what you do want, or you have to have teams, right? We need to get things done cross-functionally, uh, even within siloed functions, teams uh, can add a lot of value, but they need to be chartered well. We need to have people participating in teams who have not just the individual skills that made them the stars that made you hire them, but they have to have skills to work in teams. And while there is some overlap between the individual contributor skills and team skills, they're not the same skill set. And so what typically happens is we go into a team or organizations start to work in teams and, you know, we get the hats and the t-shirts and, and we show up at the team sessions and, and then we got to work in our teams and our hopes are, are raised. And in fact, things might get better for a while than just working on our own. But then pretty soon things go back to the way they were before. We revert to our old behaviors because that's what we got rewarded for in the past. And pretty soon conflicts don't get resolved in the way that they should be decisions, we fall back on the old decision-making habits. Uh, we end up with misaligned priorities or misaligned goals, and we don't have the tool set to, to correct that. Or office politics starts to raise its head, right? And those things don't get resolved. And I will say Compact's founder, Rob Canyon, who was one of the three founders and our CEO for many years, uh, one of his uh, genius moves was to stamp out office politics at sort of any whiff of an office politic. Uh, he was there to put that out because we were all there working towards sort of this greater good of the of the team and of the organization. And if we saw things happening that weren't directionally correct, um, there was, uh, it, it just wasn't allowed. Um, and it wasn't just rot, it was the whole organization that, that was on alert for that. So there was this whole idea of no dumbing down that happened at Compact. Secondly, we were really good at, at sort of putting I think of this continuum from startup to grown-up, um, which is not a one-way street. We think of that as a startup company, you're going to be a grown-up company. But grown-up company gets get really mired in process, right? If you think about sort of the worst thing of a, a grown-up company and why people leave is because there is so much process that you feel like you're mired in and you can't get the things done you need to get done. Sort of like uh, Gulliver, right? With all of those different ropes and so you can't move. And that, that happens in companies as they get larger. Um, it just does. But at Compaq, and um, certainly in, in many of the client companies I've worked with, you, you need to put process in place. You know, those things where, where they can be replicable and, and scalable, you can just do over and over again, uh, definitely put a process in place for that. So you don't have to spend your time as the entrepreneur thinking about it again, right? Solve the problem once and move on. Um, but uh, too often, uh, I've certainly seen large old companies that are still sort of working in startup mode where everything is reactive. Uh, everything is sort of seat at the pants versus standard operating procedure. And I've seen the reverse. I've seen uh, like super well-funded startups. This happens a lot where you get hundreds of millions of dollars as a well-funded startup. And you put so much process in place because you've got all this money that you, you really tie the hands of the people who need to be agile and need to be able to react to what's going on uh, both within the company but also within the marketplace. 
So that was another big lesson from, from Compact. And I'd say, uh, maybe just to go into one more, is this idea, um, well, maybe I have two more, one called, uh, I call playing bumper cars. Um, and that is that you set a strategy, but we know that things do not happen in the straight line. I mean, very little in life goes that way. We know we were at point A, we want to go to point B, but it doesn't look like that. It looks more like this, right? And so to, to figure out what are the boundaries um, for your strategy so that as you go along and you see that you're, you're up, I mean, great, right? You have your sales are greater than you thought they would be. But at some point, that's going to cross a line where although sales are good, the rest of the organization cannot keep up. Your customer's success organization is not staffed to bring that many people on board or to ship that many products. Your development group um, has not actually developed what it is that the salespeople are selling to make the sales so much better than you expected. And there are all kinds of reasons. And you have to make a conscious decision at that point. It's sort of a, um, I think it's sort of a, a guideline or a boundary. You have to make a conscious decision about, okay, if I keep growing, know that these things are going to be broken internally, or perhaps I find a way to slow the growth down while I catch this up so that we can get on a new trajectory. And the same thing happens on the downside, right? Sometimes sales are not what you had hoped, and you have to figure out where on that downside that boundary is. You have to make other decisions about what's going on internally. And then the last thing that I was going to mention earlier is, is what I call learning to levitate. And uh, this is really all about senior leaders taking time to think. And um, if you don't take anything else away from this, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, make sure you take time to think. It happens over and over and over again that we get so caught up in the urgent because there's always more to do than there is time in a day to do it or time in the week to do it. And nobody else puts time to think on your calendar. It's something you have to do for yourself. And I don't just mean the annual strategic planning that you do with your team offsite. You know, that's an important thing, but it is not enough uh, either for you individually or for your organization in sort of a fast-paced world that we have today. And so to, to think about, you know, how can I uh, create time to sort of get above it all or get away from it all look at the big picture, see what these forces are that are having an impact on my company and what my response needs to be to those or how do I get in front of them. Um, so I'd say those are, those are my major takeaways from my time and um, maybe as or more importantly, they're what I've seen be most successful in terms of strategies that I've applied uh, with my, my clients, my growth clients uh, in the decades since I left Compact. There's so much to what you just said. I <laughs> really a think book that, in that. <laughs> yes. absolutely. And that, the name of that, and that's no dumbing down. That's correct. the name of the book, correct? Right. Yes. So within no dumbing down, you do break, you break down a lot of those points in more detail. What I really like about this is that when we're talking with a lot of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, not as many necessarily are coming from such a corporate uh, background, a caliber of a corporate mm. background to where yeah. uh, a lot have, but a lot haven't. And so I think as you work with a large organization like this, you have an experience like you've had, it gives you a different approach to the mm -hmm. strategy that you would really approach any business. And so somebody might get really passionate, I think, about what they're doing, but if you don't know initially how to organize it or once you start getting the traction and how to right. scale out the teams, and at least two three major conversations with entrepreneurs in the past two weeks. Another thing has come up of this team concept and people saying, I went into business with the wrong people. Mm. I ended up getting, going into business and actually somebody that's uh, 
you know, uh, that I spoke with here two days ago, they said that my business is like, was like a house. Mm-hmm. I let them in and they wouldn't get out. And it was a big problem. So I, this concept of finding the right people yeah. went over some very specific things. Um, when you're looking to evaluate people to go into mm-hmm. business with, what types of skills, like how are you evaluating? How do you, how, how would an entrepreneur that's starting mm-hmm. off how would they go and assess the people around them to decide whether or not to bring them on their team in any capacity? Yeah, great question. Uh, so I want to talk about team and process. So we'll start with team and then I want to come back to process. Um, so to evaluate the right people for your team, I think it's really important to know yourself. I mean, it'd be really easy for me to say, hey, you know, you need to find people who are collaborative and, and you know, I want to work with others. And, and, and I will talk about that. I think that for me, that's really important. But what's most important is to know what sort of leader you are so that you put people on your team who complement you. And um, you can be successful with sort of, I think, any leadership style, as long as you're clear about what it is. People can self-select into your organization. So you might have a style that's more hierarchically focused than what I would like to work with. But it doesn't mean you can't be successful, but you need to hire people who are looking for that sort of an environment. But let's take the kind of people that I like to work with, um, which is um, somebody who's really clear about their strengths, clear about their development needs. Um, often they might have a really strong finance background or really clear technical background. Um, and what they're not as good at perhaps is um, sort of the more touchy-feely things in the organization. Um, so know that. Um, and you, that may never be a strength, right? Often our weaknesses are never really going to turn into strengths for us. But it doesn't mean they have to get in our way. So the goal needs to be to develop an organization where those things don't get in your way. Sometimes you do it by hiring someone who, who really has the strength that you don't have. Um, and you have to do that in a way that you're conscious about because you'll have conflicts, right? Because you won't value those things as much. Um, so be really conscious about it. Um, but I think the kinds of traits in particular that I believe are important for growth companies are hiring people who are technically good, right? That's table stakes but people who are curious, right, about why things work and how they work, people who have great influencing skills. Um, and by that, I don't mean that they're power hungry. Uh, if, we, if you remember sort of McClellan's motivational theory, we get motivated by achievement or affiliation or power. Um, I really want people who are achievement motivated and not so power motivated. Although it takes some power in order to achieve all that's possible. That was sort of my big aha moment that I could be as achievement motivated as I want, but for the rest of my team to be able to achieve, um, I had to pay attention to some power dynamics in the organization. So anyway, you wanna get people who are achievement motivated, but understand power. Um, uh, People who are curious, people who are comfortable with ambiguity because things change. And when we hire people who are not comfortable with ambiguity and things change, then what happens? then we have a problem. We have people who are uncomfortable. We have people who are not willing to follow us where we need to go, but are not willing to take the organization to the next level. Um, So I think those are the things that I would pay most attention to. Interesting. I'm I'm curious in terms of for conflict, Mm -hmm. conflict comes up in so many ways. Yes. And you mentioned that. How, how did you, you mentioned that the, I think it was the CEO of Compaq, uh, mm-hmm. or the, so that he was exceptionally good at snuffing out conflict. So what, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you manage conflict effectively? Yeah. So, so Ron was exceptionally good at snuffing out office politics. 
they were just not, not allowed. Uh, and those were things that I think came from more power motivation maybe than conflict. Um, but conflict, which is just this normal, natural thing that happens between human beings when we interact, you know, comes from differences in values or differences in priorities, different methods. We might agree on where we're going. We just don't agree on how we're going to get there. Um, and then you have to think, does it matter how we get there? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I think to understand um, that most of us come into an organizational setting with a preferred way of dealing with conflict. It's often the whatever we learned in our families, right? So maybe we all accommodated conflict or we avoided conflict or we learned that competing was the way to go. Uh, or some of us think, well, collaboration is the answer and so we should always collaborate. And in fact, none of those are always the answer. You need to choose the conflict response. And in fact, sometimes you can even be proactive and get ahead of the conflict if you see it coming. That's appropriate to the kind of conflict that it is. Uh, there's a great model called the Thomas Kilman model, K-I-L-M-A-N, uh, which looks at these five different ways of dealing with conflict. Um, and um, I have found over and over again with thousands of people now uh, that yes, we all have a preferred way and we have a way that we don't use very often. And what you don't want to do is use the wrong style of dealing with conflict for the kind of conflict you have in front of you. You know, save the collaboration for the big important things. Why? Not because it's not good, but because it takes a lot of time and you don't have time to solve all your conflict collaboration. Uh, use avoidance, which we always think, oh, we should avoid a conflict. Well, yeah, if you don't care much about it and the other person doesn't care much about it, don't spend any time on it. Move on to something that's more important. And there are situations like that for each and every one of these five different styles in this model. That, that's interesting. I have a few more questions, but I, I would like to ask as you've sort of now kind of stepped out and having your own business and trying to mm -hmm. grow entrepreneurially, speaking and writing, uh, having you know this knowledge uh, and this approach, what have been the major challenges that you faced with trying to sort of grow your, your business? Yeah, so the first thing was realizing that it wasn't enough just to do good work, right? Because I, from a corporate environment, if you just do good work, often that's enough. But I had to pay attention to the business of my business, not just the mission of my business. Um, and in particular, I mean, I certainly knew how to, how to deal with the books and I wasn't afraid of the money, uh, but I had to learn how to, how to market myself, uh, how to let people know that I was available to do work. Um, and for someone who um, uh, grew up in a situation where we didn't, we didn't toot our own horn very often, uh, that was something that I had to get over. And after a number of people said, hey, you're burying the lead, right? You need to talk more about who you are and what you've done. Um, I had to get comfortable doing that. And once I did, that made a big difference. So uh, I would say, um, uh, one, just learning to let people know um, what the work is that I do. Um, and then secondly, um, I have so many clients that I've worked with now, like my third and fourth company, right? Um, they go to new companies, they go from a CXO job to a CEO job and take me with them, or a SVP to a CEO and take me with them, or they just get promoted into a new situation. Um, and so sort of staying with people for the long term um, has been really important to me and, and helping them by coaching them, right? Doing CEO consultation or advising um, and developing a next generation of leaders at a company that's growing, right? Oftentimes we get that senior team really tuned up, which it must be, but as the company grows, that next generation really has to develop too so they can take on the things that your senior team is doing this year or the year before so that that team can go on and do other things. Um, so sort of um, 
nurturing. I think the future leaders uh, is something else that I've paid attention to. Great. Now, uh, as you mentioned in, in your book, No Dumbing Down, uh, the, a lot of different strategies and thoughts are broken down there. If you were, if you were interacting, say, with somebody that, in this case, was just uh, had a business on their own right now, and mm -hmm. you were really needing to, you just had an opportunity to kind of have a conversation, you're mentoring them perhaps a little bit about how they can start to open up their minds to different ways mm. to structure and scale or think about systems differently yeah. so they could start to grow more effectively. Uh, are there, would there be a couple key points that you would try to uncover from them or to direct them towards? What would that look like? Yeah, so, you know, depending, uh, so many situations, all situations are really different, right? And we could characterize into a few, but um, I think there are a couple of things that I would point people to. One is, is seriously making time to think. Uh, there's a great story of Ross Mason, who was the founder of a company called MuleSoft, uh, which makes software some of your, you or some of your um, uh, viewers here may have heard of. Um, it started as a line of code because he got really frustrated about something he couldn't do as a, as a software developer. And he started this company and um, he recently sold it uh, last year to, for $6.5 billion to Salesforce, right? And um, this company grew in part because he was smart enough to be able to see that he couldn't do everything. I think that's something that entrepreneurs often, we have a hard time letting go of things. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, but Ross brought in a CEO fairly early. He gave up that mantle. And, and he, he says every year, uh, he sits down at the end of the year and he puts his feet up and he thinks, where can MuleSoft use me the most next year? And that's where he focuses. You know, it's not that he needs to be the public face. One year it might be sales. One year it might be development. One year it might be marketing. You know, it's wherever the company can use him. That's where he puts his attention. And I think that's really important for, for anyone who's an entrepreneur to do. Where in the organization needs your attention in order to sort of make it to the next level next year and to, to focus there? That's one thing. Um, I think the second thing, and um, this is so important, it's, is what is your accountability mechanism in the organization, right? So a lot of people, we all have good intentions, but how do we get our behaviors to line up with our intentions? Um, you know, we, we have these great annual, you know, meetings or these kickoffs for the coming year. Everybody leaves and they're all pumped up and ready to do things differently. And then we revert back to our old behaviors because there's no accountability mechanism. You know, maybe we sit down at the annual review a year from now and say, oh, I was going to do this, but instead I did that. But we didn't even think about it because we didn't have an accountability mechanism. And so I think for you personally, uh, as well as some way for your organization to hold itself accountable so that there's mutually accountability, especially on your senior team, uh, is something that's really important. You know, what is it that you're trying to do? How will you know? What are your measurements? And um, then how do, you, how do you hold yourselves accountable for that? Mm, a lot of very good, good advice. And again, I, I really am hearing from this too. I think a lot of this type of uh, perspective you have really is from having the type of corporate background that you have to be able to kind of understand and see uh, some of these perspectives. So yes, and just really to, take awesome. the, to take the nuggets, you know, my book is sort of a primer for CEOs, right? It's, it's not the 400-page not the tome. It's the sort of really skinny down, what are the most important things to pay attention to? And um, I think accountability uh, ranks right up there with anything else anyone could talk about. Interesting. 
So this is one thing that I had written down here, and you, you mentioned this here earlier on, the, the company culture. And mm -hmm. so really developing that culture. And so as an entrepreneur, you have a brand, you mm -hmm. have a business that you're building, uh, the teams that you're, you're going you're gonna to grow with. So the culture, can you talk to us a little more about the company culture and as it's related to maybe an early company or a growing company, what is culture mm -hmm. and how do you influence it? And what should we look for for creating culture? Yeah, so uh, many different kinds of cultures, right? Um, but the culture in my world are the behaviors in an organization. It's not the stuff that's on the wall. It's not the committee that meets on Friday and decides, you know, what's the fun thing we're going to do this week uh, as an organization. Those things are important. Uh, but culture really is the behaviors within the organization um, and the and I, I see it. I do a lot of M&A work. And so I see these, uh, these clashes of sort of two great cultures happen all the time when there's an acquisition or there's a merger. Both companies were doing really well, but with very different cultures. And when, uh, the, when they were evaluating, should we do this merger or this acquisition or not, uh, they didn't look at what's it going to take to get the value from the merger, i.e. putting these cultures together. Um, and that sometimes can be a lot more laborious and going through all the financials to make the deal work, right? So it's the, it's the, the a lot of people get rewarded for making the deal, but not so many for making the deal work. You got to pay attention to that. But in any organization, I think it's, um, it's, it's very important, not just to be clear about the behaviors you want, but how are you going to reward those behaviors when you see them? So people say, oh yeah, they're serious. They really want me to do that. And how are you going to disincent the behaviors you don't want when you see those? And then as importantly, uh, the entrepreneur, the leader of the organization has to be completely congruent with behaviors that are consistent with what they say they want. Because the moment that you say, we really have to pay attention to cost cutting this year, and then you take the first class flight while everybody else is in the economy seat, people see the incongruency. And then, then there's a little erosion of trust. Um, and trust and respect for me are the two basics of any culture that's going to be successful. Um, I'm thinking of authenticity here as yeah, well. Sure. That's, yeah. Well, very, very good. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Now, one thought that was coming to mind here too was I, I was thinking more of the, the marketing uh, challenges that you mentioned for, for yourself and trying to mm -hmm. grow. And so with, uh, in this case, trying to then um, kind of grow out your, your business, and in the marketing, what uh, what ways have you found to be most, I guess, uh, effective at trying to then market yourself? And what what are you still working on with that? And uh, what what has worked well? Yeah, so um, I'm fortunate in that the the work that I do, I work with my clients for many years. As I mentioned, I work at the CXO level. Uh, I'm working mostly with growth companies, primarily in the tech space, although not exclusively. Um, and so the the work that I do, if you think about sort of the value curve, is all on this end. <laughs> what, I, what I don't have is anything here that's sort of a feeder mechanism to that uh, or didn't have uh, beyond referrals. And, you know, if, you're, if I were going to ask any entrepreneur to pay attention to something, it is pay attention to the referrals. You have to ask your clients to refer you to people like them, right? And, and I don't care if you're selling yourself or you're selling widgets, right? Um, you know, or you're selling books or whatever it is you're selling. Um, to get your, cl your clients, you know, know who other people are like them 
And, um, and I think that's where you start to form your foundation. Um, but finding certainly different things at different price points um, to sort of grow your pipeline um, is really important. And then having a really good strategy to, to sort of, once you get into a client, how do you expand uh, your presence, right? Sort of this, the customer success model, you know, keep your customers successful um, and keep um, adding new offerings for them. Um, and then, um, uh, so I think beyond that, this is this idea of constantly um, creating new value for your customers, uh, I would say is something that I've um, fortunate to have been able to do over the years so that you can continue to add value as they grow, you grow. Perfect. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I really like this concept actually of no dumbing down. I, I really like how you explained how you came to that. And uh, you mentioned A players and attracting A players. Mm -hmm. so, so to attract the A team yeah. and to attract really the people that don't want to dumb down, mm -hmm. where does the pricing come into play? And what do, we, what do people yeah. need to keep in mind if they're scared to say, I want the A team? So if you're scared of your price, your customers are going to be more scared, right? You have to believe in the value of what you're offering. That's the first thing. And um, for me, it's not just how do I value it. What's the value to the client? What is the value to the client? So what are the objectives for whatever it is that I'm, um, I'm proposing? Getting clear in the, in, the, in the client's words about what those are. How will we know if we reach those objectives? How do we measure them? That's my engineering background coming in, right? We have to be able to measure it and know if we get there. And then what is the value to the client of reaching those objectives and those measurements, right? And if I'm doing work where they can say, look, you know, sometimes they say, you know, this is worth, you know, $5 million. Great. I'm not going to charge them $5 million, right? I'm going to charge them. So, you know, maybe you make a hundred to one on what you pay me or whatever, but use their numbers. Um, and they, sometimes they'll say, you know, it's really hard to put a, you know, I do you know, leadership and organization development. I help them do strategy work. It can be hard to say exactly what the value is. So I'm like, okay, give me a range. Or what happens if we don't do this work, right? You don't make that sale. You don't have a leadership team that's ready. You make sales that you can't deliver on. You lose X number of customers. You can't get your customer success rates, retention rates, from 75% to 93%, whatever your targets are. What's the value of that? So finding ways to quantify it in the client's world and words um, helps you establish what your value is. Um, somebody asked me not very long ago, so if your client really needs just an hour or two at your time, what's your hourly rate? I don't have an hourly rate. I will never have an hourly rate because once you, once you give that, you can't take it back. And then you're stuck with, oh yes, they think you know she's, $400 an hour or $700 an hour. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I don't work by the hour. And so I don't want anybody to have a number stuck in their head around that. It really is all about value. And if you think about how, um, at least for my clients, that's how they work with their clients, right? What's the value of their product to the clients because of the problem that it solves? And that's how they figure out how much they can sell. It's not just about how much it costs them and a little bit of markup. It's what's the value to the end customer. Sounds like having very good questions, knowing your client and ha having a relationship and an in-depth enough interaction with them to be able to get them to share what the points are really that's of, of value to them, get them to elaborate on it, and then getting them to 
uh, elaborate on really what the dollar values essentially would be to accomplish or not accomplish those. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so I think, I think there's at least one person listening here that needed to hear this. So times however many, but yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's phenomenal. So, um, well, let, let's do this. I think this was very much value rich. I think we got into a lot and in terms of with no dumbing down, uh, clearly see uh, uh, a lot of value to really kind of dig into what, what you have there. So from here, so what, what else are you uh, working on kind of uh, going forward? Mm -hmm. What are sort of the next steps for, for Karen Walker? Yeah, so um, the, the book which just came out was sort of a big thing for me. I didn't know I was going to write a book or I had a book in me, but I realized I wanted to reach a broader audience and I could just work with one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, there's definitely, uh, so that was a big step for me. Um, I, I have spoken all over the world in my past, but I haven't spoken as much recently. I've been more focused on just doing the client work. Um, and so um, this year I've booked a number of sort of really exciting speaking engagements for myself, which I'm uh, really happy to get back into. Um, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I think, you know, those are that and just, um, you know, I have had these, uh, these amazing clients that are just doing new, wonderful, exciting things as they grow uh, and sort of being able to stay on the edge with them about how to keep that moving forward. Um, and, um, and as always, uh, sort of bringing more um, executive coaching clients into my fold um, is where I, those are probably the three or four things I'm most focused on for the next couple of years. Great. Tell us what are some of the speaking engagements that are coming up? What are where where are they and, and what are their what are their names? Yeah, so today um, I booked for a tech conference in San Francisco called Accelerate that'll happen in uh, in May uh, that I'm pretty excited about. Um, part because it's uh, it's tech, which is near and dear to my heart because of my background. Uh, I'm uh, in conversation with a university to speak to a, a giant uh, leadership conference that they have. Um, that books a year in advance, so that's like 2020. Um, and then I have a number of smaller conferences where um, I'm working, you know, doing working with um, with groups uh, to take some of these concepts and then just turn them into actionable items uh, for the members of the audience. So it ranges sort of from keynotes uh, to actually uh, doing hands-on workshops. Fascinating. Well, we have a lot of people that are either. Uh, deep into speaking or mm. are thinking of getting into speaking or just starting off what what advice would you have for people that are you know at this point thinking of getting into speaking or just starting so that they can get more quality engagements yeah. and be yeah. more effective well for me um, I tried not to think about speaking as sort of like writing the book I didn't write the book to make a lot of money from the book um, and so I'm not, I'm not speaking in order to make a living from speaking. Um, it's, a, it's a way, it's like writing the book. Uh, when I craft a speech or, or design a workshop, it's all about refining my thinking and my ideas um, so that I'm able to bring something new to that audience. Um, and so for me, that's sort of where the, the passion in doing that that work does. I don't think I could get up and get the same speech over and over again to just different audiences in different cities. Um, so to find ways to sort of make it new and fresh for yourself is important. Um, but in terms of how to find clients, um, again, it goes back to referrals. So who are your existing clients? Um, what organizations do they belong to? Uh, once you have a trusted relationship with them, um, getting referrals into their organizations, their associations. Um, and starting, you know, starting small. Um, and then once you get sort of this loyal following, um, you'll be able to work your way up. 
Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, so from here, uh, this actually, this conversation, I'd like to go and just completely outline it and break it down. <laughs> and there's so much to get from here. So thank you so much. Anything else that you would like to share or kind of uh, sort of uh, end our time with or questions you'd like to pose for anybody or uh, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll have you share too how people can best connect right. with you as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, first, thank you because these things are best when they're a conversation. And so um, I really uh, enjoyed the thoughtful questions that you had for me. Um, I am happy to answer any questions that I can for your audience. Um, um, and in order to reach me, uh, the website is uh, karenwalker.us. Uh, and then on all the social media sites, I'm just karenwalker.us. And then if you want more information about the book, you can do that from my website, or you can just go to notedumbingdown.com, and that will redirect you to uh, one of the places where you can purchase it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Karen. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Mastery, where entrepreneurs go to network and learn how to attract their ideal clients via LinkedIn and broker powerful connections worldwide. Be sure to visit us at LinkedIn Mastery on Facebook. Be sure to replace the Y with three E's and join us at LinkedIn mastery enjoy this sneak peek of the upcoming episode and if you like what you've heard be sure to subscribe so you get first notification of all upcoming episodes and if you really like us and you want to help more people hear us be sure to write a review a five-star review and let everybody know how errol helps entrepreneurs and then the second thing is recognize today and it's how I'm evolving what we're doing in social media that that whether or not you like it the narrative is getting created about you and your company on the internet it, it, it so either you're gonna you're gonna beat that that to the punch and create the narrative so you can shape people's thinking about who you are the firm and what you do and create that brand or the internet is gonna create the brand for you and and it's it's hard because when you have an opinion you get nervous because sometimes people are going to disagree and they're going to get upset and every once in a while they're going to call you names. But that is the nature of getting to success on this is that you must not be Switzerland. That's phenomenal. Tell me, so you've now moved into with the marketing as well to be on television on, yeah. you know, the CNN and CNBC. So I see a lot of the progression of this from starting to moving towards higher levels of thought leadership, if you can kind of influence on a larger scale with your content, you start to be able to connect with larger people or people that are a different, they're branded differently. Just the fact that you, they would see you on, on TV, that simple shot, it creates a whole different sort of level. 